Chapter Eight of Hushed Up by William LeCue. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Eight presents another problem. When by slow degrees I became aware of things about me, I found myself in total darkness, save that straight before my eyes, some few feet away, showed a thin, narrow line of light. Next second a flood of the most horrible recollections surged through my brain. I dare not move a muscle, fearing that the reptile was lurking near my face. My senses seemed dulled and dazed, yet my recollections were quite clear. Every detail of those moments of awful terror stood out clear and fearsome in my mind. Slowly, so slow, indeed as to be imperceptible, I managed to turn my head aside and glance at the small table. But it was in darkness. I could distinguish nothing. To my surprise I discovered, however, that though I still remained in that position, my legs higher than my head, yet the arms of the chair had unclasped, and my bonds had been freed. What had happened? The fear of bringing the watchful reptile upon me, I moved slightly, but there was no movement from the table in the darkness. I waited, dreading lest I should be suddenly attacked. Then, summoning courage, I suddenly sprang out of the chair on the side opposite the table and dashed across to where showed that narrow streak of light. I saw that it came through the lower crevice of the heavy wooden shutters. With frantic haste my hands slid over them. I found an iron bar, and this unlatched I threw them back and let in the broad light of day. For a moment my eyes were startled by the sunlight. Then, on looking behind me, I saw that upon the table the candle had burned itself to its socket, while on the floor, nearby, lay the small black reptile stretched out motionless. I feared at first to approach it. To its tail the cord was still attached, but it had been severed. I crept towards it and, bending down, realized with great relief that it was dead. The leathern collar which had secured my head had been loosened, and the mechanism of the chair reversed, allowing me my freedom. I looked around the room in wonder. There stood the littered card-table and the empty glasses of the previous night, while the air was still heavy with the odor of stale cigars. Making quite certain that the reptile was dead, I turned my attention to the chair and noted how cleverly the devilish mechanism had been hidden. It could, as I had suspected, be worked from without. The victim, once seated there, had no chance whatever of escape. In the light of day the room, that fatal apartment wherein more than one innocent man had no doubt met with a horrible end, looked very shabby and dingy. The furniture was cheap and tawdry, and the carpet very dirty. There upon the card-table stood the ink while the pen used by Reckitt lay upon the floor. My wallet lay open nearby. I took it up quickly to glance through its contents. As far as I could discover, nothing had been taken except the check I had written out, believing I was to assist Jack Marlowe. Eagerly I glanced at my watch and found it was already a quarter past ten. The scoundrels had no doubt already been to the bank, cashed my check, and were by this time clear away. Remembering Sylvia I drew my revolver, which still remained in my hip pocket, and finding the door unlocked went forth to search for her. The fact that the door was now unlocked showed that someone had entered there during my unconsciousness and released me.
from the appearance of the snake it seemed to have been killed by a sharp blow across its back. Someone had rescued me just in the nick of time. I entered the front room on the same floor, the room whence those woman's screams had emanated. It was a big bare drawing-room, furnished in the ugly early Victorian style, musty-smelling and moth-eaten. The dirty holland blinds fitted badly and had holes in them, therefore sufficient light was admitted to afford me a good view of the large apartment. There was nothing unusual there, save upon a small work-table lay some embroidery work, where apparently it had been put down. An open novel lay near, while close by was a big bowl filled with yellow roses. Yet the apartment seemed to have been long closed and neglected, while the atmosphere had a musty odor which was not dispelled by the sweet perfume of the flowers. Had Sylvia been in this room when she had shrieked? I saw something upon the floor and picked it up. It proved to be a narrow band of turquoise blue velvet, the ornament from a woman's hair. Did it belong to her? In vain I looked around for a candle, for evidences of the same medieval torture to which I had been submitted, but there were none. In fear and trepidation I entered yet another room on the same floor, but it was dusty and neglected, a kind of sitting-room and perhaps boudoir, for there was an old-fashioned high-backed piano in it. Yet there was no sign that anybody had entered there for weeks, perhaps for months. In the sunlight I saw that there were cobwebs everywhere. Surely it was a very strange house. It struck me that its owner had perhaps died years ago, and since then it had remained untenanted. Everywhere the style of furniture was that of sixty years ago, and thick dust was covering all. On entering the previous night I had not noticed this, but now in the broad light of day the place looked very different. I saw to my surprise that the windows had not been cleaned for years, and that cobwebs hung everywhere. Revolver in hand I searched the place to the basement, but there was no evidence of occupation. The doors of the kitchens had not, apparently, been opened for years. Upstairs the bedrooms were old-fashioned, with heavy hangings gray with dust and half-hidden by festoons of cobwebs. In not a single room was a bed that had been slept in. Indeed, I question if anyone had ascended to the second floor for several years. As I stood in one of the rooms gazing round in wonder, and half suffocated by the dust my footsteps had disturbed, it suddenly occurred to me that the pair of assassins, believing that I had died, would, no doubt, return and dispose of my body. To me it seemed certain that this was not the first occasion that they had played the dastardly and brutal game. Yes, I felt positive they would return. I searched the place to find a telephone, but there was none. The bogus message sent to me had been sent from elsewhere. The only trace of Sylvia I could find was that piece of velvet ribbon, the embroidery which had so hastily been flung down, and the bowl of fresh roses. Why had she been there? The book and the embroidery showed that she had waited. For what? That bowl of roses had been placed there to make the room look fresh, for some attempt had been made to clean the apartment, just as it had been made in the room wherein I had suffered such torture. Why had Sylvia uttered those screams of horror? I recollected those words of her. I recognized her voice. I would indeed have recognized it among the voices of a thousand women. 
I returned to the drawing-room and gazed around it in wonder. If, as it seemed, Reckitt and Forbes had taken unlawful possession of an untenanted house, then it was probable they would not return to get rid of my remains. The whole affair was incomprehensible. It seemed evident that Sylvia had not fallen a victim to the vengeance of the pair, as I had feared, but that perhaps I had owed my life to her. Could it be that she had learned of my peril, released me, killed the venomous reptile, and escaped? Suddenly, as my eyes wandered about the dingy old room, I caught sight of something shining. A golden bangle of curious Indian design was lying upon the mantel-shelf. I took it up, and in a moment recognized it as one I had seen upon her wrist one evening while she sat at dinner at Gardoni. I replaced it, stood for a moment deep in thought, and then with sudden resolve returned to the chamber of horror, obtained my hat, and, descending the stairs, went forth into Porchester Terrace. I had to walk as far as Bayswater Road before I could find a taxi. The sun was now shining brightly, and there were many people about in the streets. Finding a cab at last, I told the man to drive with all speed to my bank in Oxford Street. It was just eleven when I went up to the counter to one of the paying cashiers I knew, and asked him breathlessly if a check of mine had been paid to a person named Reckitt. He saw by my manner that I was in hot haste. "'I've cashed it not a moment ago, Mr. Bidolph,' was his reply. "'Why, you must have passed the man as you came in.' he's only this moment gone out. Without a word I dashed back to the swing-doors, and there, sure enough, only a few yards away, I caught sight of Forbes in a smart grey flannel suit, entering a taxi. I shouted, but the taxi-man did not hear me. He was facing westward, and ere I could attract his attention he was slowly moving in the direction of the marble arch. The quick eyes of Forbes had, however, detected me, and leaning out he said something to his driver. Quickly I re-entered my cab and told my man to turn and follow, pointing out the taxi in front. Mine was open while that in which the assassin sat was closed. In his pocket the scoundrel carried over a thousand pounds of my money. My first impulse was to stop and inform a police constable, but if I did so I saw that he must escape. I shouted to my driver to try and see the number of the cab, but there was a lot of traffic and he was unable to see it clearly. I suppose I must have cut a sorry figure, disheveled as I was by my night's weird experience, and covered with the dust of that untenanted house. What the bank clerk must have thought I know not. It was an exciting chase. For a moment we were held up by the police at Regent Circus, for there was much traffic, but only for a brief space. Then we tore after the receding cab at a pace which made many passersby spare. The cab in which Forbes was being closed, the driver did not see us, but I knew that the assassin was watching us from the tiny window in the back, and was giving his driver instructions through the front window. My man had entered fully into the spirit of the chase. "'That fellow in yonder taxi has just stolen a thousand pounds,' I told him. "'All right, sir,' replied my driver, as he bent over his wheel. "'We shall catch him presently, never fear. I'm keeping my eye upon him all right.' There were many taxis coming into the line of traffic from Bond Street and from the other main thoroughfares crossing Oxford Street, red taxis just like the one in which Forbes was escaping. Yet we both kept our eyes fixed upon that particular one, the driver of which presently bent sideways and shot back a glance at us. 
Then he put on speed, and with marvelous dexterity threaded in and out of the motor-buses and carts in front of him. I was compelled to admire his driving. I could only suppose that Forbes had offered him something handsome if he got safely away. At the Marble Arch he suddenly turned down Park Lane, where the traffic was less, and there, gaining upon us, he turned into one of the smaller streets, through Upper Grosvenor Street winding in and out the intricate thoroughfares which lay between Grosvenor Square and Regent Street. Across Hanover Square and along Hanover Street we sped, until, passing out on to the opposite side of Regent Street, the driver, evidently believing that he had outwitted us, slowed down and then pulled up suddenly before a shop. Ere the fugitive could escape, indeed ere the door could be opened, we had pulled up a few yards away, and I dashed out and up to the door of the cab, my revolver gripped in my hand. My driver had descended also and gained the other side of the cab almost as soon as I had. I opened the door and met the fugitive boldly face to face. Next second I fell back as though I had received a blow. I stood aghast. I could utter no word. The mystery had, I realized, in that second, been increased a hundredfold. End of chapter 8 Recording by Tom Weiss TomsAudiobooks.com